Well, good morning, church family. I encourage you to take your Bibles now to turn to the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 9, I think, right? Luke chapter 9, our text this morning is verses 18 through 27. don't know about you, but it has been good and encouraging as we've been walking through this gospel. And we continue on this morning with a very crucial passage as we consider these verses that are before us today. Luke chapter 9, I'm going to begin reading in verse 18 and read down through verse 27. These are the words of the Lord. Now it happened... That he was, as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him. And he asked them, Who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist. But others say, Elijah. And others, that one of the prophets of old has risen. Then he said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And he said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits his soul or himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words of him, the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. What does it truly mean to follow Jesus? What does it mean to be a disciple? Or we could simply say, what does it mean to be a Christian? You see, a disciple is not some subset of Christian. A disciple is a Christian. A Christian is a disciple. So what does it mean to be a disciple? What does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? I mean, you can be a fan of Jesus quite easily. Many, even in the unbelieving world, find things that they admire about Jesus, that they respect. They're a fan of Jesus. They would like his Facebook page. But admiring Jesus as a fan is not the same thing as following Jesus as a disciple. And even for many that are, quote-unquote, in the church, there seems oftentimes to be a disconnect in understanding the difference between merely being a fan and that of being a follower. You see, many want the blessings that Jesus promises without it costing us anything. We live in a culture driven by personal fulfillment, the pursuit of personal fulfillment. And often that has 
that has not been weeded out of our own understanding at times of what it means to be a disciple. And so this, this idea of the Christian life that we're presented with in the Bible is that true fulfillment is found not by chasing your own dreams, but rather yielding yourself to Christ and the purposes and priorities of God. So the question being, what does it mean to be a disciple? According to this passage, I want us to see two essentials that must be true of every disciple, of every Christian. If you claim to follow Jesus, as I would assume many of you in this room would, these are two things that must be true of you. We're going to see them unfold in this passage before us today. Two essentials of discipleship. Number one, being a disciple means that we have a crucial confession. You see that in the first few verses here, in verses 18 through 23 in particular. A crucial confession. Remember just a few weeks ago when we were um, earlier in this chapter, in verses 7 through 9, Herod, ruler of that day and time and of that region, was perplexed over who Jesus was and what was going on. And he asked, who is this about whom I hear such things? And those around him sought to suggest a few answers. Remember what they said. Some said it was John the Baptist. Some said Elijah. Others said it was maybe one of the prophets of old. And so here in our text today, Jesus asked his disciples basically the same question that Herod had posed. Who do the crowds say that I am? He's, he's saying this to his disciples. Again, this is after their, their journey, after the feeding of the 5,000. And now here in verses 18 and 19, we see Jesus with his disciples ask him this question. Who do the crowds say that I am? What's the popular opinion? What are people saying? What's the word on the street? And just like those around Herod were saying, they give the same answers. John the Baptist, Elijah, maybe one of the prophets of old. These are, these are kind of the common opinions, perspectives as to who you are. And then Jesus turns to them in verse 20 and says, but who do you say that I am? And Peter, responding most likely for the 12 here, says the Christ of God. You see, this question has been dangling around for a while now, and it's here at this moment, this pivotal moment, that Peter speaks with clarity and certainty regarding who Jesus is. He knows, based upon what he's seen and observed and experienced, he knows that Jesus is more than a prophet or a teacher. And through his confession, He acknowledges that he is, in fact, the promised one, the Messiah. In this exchange between Jesus and his disciples here in the first few verses, there's several perspectives that I want to kind of go back and break down. I want us to look at the crowd's confession, and then I want us to see Peter's confession on behalf of the disciples, then I want us to consider Jesus' commentary on that confession. So let's go back to the crowds for a moment. Again, the crowds were following Jesus, and They would surely have developed opinions about who he was. And so Jesus throws that question to his disciples. Who do they say them? They respond with the three options, basically, that 
Herod and those around Herod had given. You see, the crowds had regarded Jesus with some level of esteem, respect, but they still lacked insight. They still lacked lacked true understanding as to who Jesus was. They came to him for his miraculous works, but there's no intention at all in these passages among the crowds of them abandoning everything that they had and following him after all. He was simply there to meet their needs. Friends, I think this is a good reminder to us, and we've seen it before, maybe even a little bit last week. It's a good reminder to us that there will often be popular impressions about Christ, Christianity, specifically about Jesus, that totally miss who he is. Even those who may have good intentions, whether it's those of another religion, secular folk, with no religious identity whatsoever, even some among professing Christians, we'll lose that term, use that term loosely. Some say he's a prophet, he's a great prophet. He's, maybe if you're a Buddhist, he's the enlight, one of the enlightened ones. If you're at the university or at a college campus, maybe he's a humanist revolutionary of some kind. Some see him merely as a political prop. Others may be a good guy or a moral example for us to follow. Anyone with any integrity in the study of history can't deny Jesus was a historical figure. And it's not that people try to deny his existence, though some of those folks exist in the world, as much as they totally misunderstand who he is. Again, a few years back, we were in southern France. I recall having a lengthy conversation with a devout Muslim man about the Bible and Jesus. And he over and over expressed just how much respect and esteem he had for Jesus as a great prophet. But in no way would consider him to be God in the flesh. See, there are many opinions about Jesus today. Many opinions about Jesus, but surely all of them can't be true. Indeed, there's only one source of truth regarding who Jesus is, and it's found in the Scriptures. Friends, this is just a reminder to us that we must be careful not to buy into popular notions about Jesus just because it may sound good. We we shouldn't buy into popular notions just because maybe our friends or our parents or somebody we respect and know may have this opinion about who Jesus is. There's no greater tragedy in the world than to get this wrong. So you see the crowd's confession. They get it wrong. But let's look at the disciples' confession. Particularly through the mouth of Peter, speaking in some ways as a spokesman here. He's responding. Jesus asked the question, but who do you say that I am? This is a plural question. He's asking all of them, not just Peter, but Peter's the one that speaks up and answers. He says, you are the Christ of God. You are the expected deliverer and redeemer that's been promised of old. Now, this didn't mean that Peter and the disciples understand the full impact of this confession at this moment. They don't. 
Some have put it before, you know, they're starting to get the outline correct, but Jesus is going to spend a lot more time filling in the color for them. They're starting to get the shape of this. They, they, get, they get it right. He's the, he's the Messiah. So they have a good start. They affirm that Jesus is the Christ. And it's important for us to note, just as a side note, that, that Christ is not Jesus' last name but rather a title that identifies his messianic role. He's the promised one, the deliverer that the Old Testament had long proclaimed. Peter doesn't elaborate on what he understands this confession to include. Here in Luke's account, we see he merely says, you are the Christ of God, and we know that That is true, and we've already seen that that is true through many examples that we've already had in Luke. It's already been revealed to us in many different ways. In Luke chapter 1, the angel Gabriel identifies Jesus as the Messiah in religious and political terms, namely that he will be given David's throne and will reign over Jacob forever, and there will be no end to his kingdom. In Luke chapter 4, Jesus is anointed by the Holy Spirit to carry out his assigned work, another affirmation and confirmation that he is the Messiah. In Luke chapter 7, in a little turn of events, John the Baptist, having assumed that he was in fact the Messiah, now questions, could he be? Is he really the one that was to come? Because things are not unfolding like they had expected. Luke chapter 8, the demons make what perhaps is the first true confession regarding Jesus in this gospel. They get it. And in Luke chapter 9, Jesus' ministry continues to unfold in a way that clarified the political expectations of many. So again, he's stating through example and through presence and through teaching that he is in fact the one that was promised. And so now Peter's confession, following all that's been recorded before, is merely a nicely tied bow on all that we've seen. You are the Christ of God. Peter says, what we've long seen and assumed up until this point. You know, truthfully, I'm not sure, I'm not sure that we, us today here, appreciate this confession as much as we should. Of course, today it seems obvious to us that Jesus is the Messiah. If you're a Christian, if you've been part of the church and, and we know we read the scriptures, and we, we, that, that, that's our confession. We believe he's the promised one that come to the one to come to save us from our sins. And so it's obvious. Well, of course he's the Messiah. We've moved on from that. But friends, this was not the conclusion that most had come to during this day. Not the, not the, not the common answer that was given. In fact, most saw Jesus as an important figure, perhaps a prophet, teacher, yes, But Messiah, no way. And Peter steps forward in a bold expression of faith and declares, yes, indeed, he's the Messiah. This question that Jesus poses to the disciples, he asks who the crowd say, and then he says to them, but who do you say that I am? Friends, this is the most important question you will ever be confronted with. Not only is Jesus asking the disciples this question, I think he's asking us the very same question. Who do you say Jesus 
is. Who do you say Jesus is? I'm not asking you who you think Jesus is based upon popular opinion. I'm not asking what your parents' perspective of who Jesus is or your friends or what you may see out there in social media world and in other places. I'm asking you. Jesus is asking you. Who do you say Jesus is? This is a question that we all individually must answer. And it's the most important question we could answer because eternity hangs in the balance. Who do you think Jesus is? Who do you claim him to be? Is he just a good guy? Good example for you to follow? Maybe somebody to point your kids to, you know, be more like him. See some great teacher and prophet, another in the long line of great teachers and prophets through the Bible, just another one that's just kind of like them? Is he some radical revolutionary that's come to transform society? Or is he the divine promised deliverer that came for sinners? To make us right with the holy God. You see friends. We must embrace Jesus for who he truly is. Not for what we want him to be. As I just ask you. Is that your confession? Do you see Jesus as the Christ of God? The one who was promised from of old. The one who came to bear our burdens. Peter gets it right. There's a lot more for Peter to understand, but he gets it right. I want us to to go on now and look at Jesus' comments on this confession, we could say. Because right after Peter makes this true confession, you're the Christ of God, notice what Jesus does in verse 21. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one. That's a little confusing. I mean, if this, if this is the true answer, if eternity hangs in the balance on an answer like this, why would Jesus tell them, don't tell anybody about this? Well, it's not because he disagreed with Peter's conclusion. He does agree. I think he gives them this call to silence because his earthly ministry had not yet been completed and it would be possible further to, to further misunderstanding. So rather relying upon early verbal claims of his messianic fulfillment, Jesus wants his works as they fulfill the scriptures to speak for themselves. And then once his work is complete and he ascends back to heaven, then that is the opportunity for the disciples to go forth with clear proclamation that Jesus is indeed the Messiah. This is the first reference we see here as he tells them not to tell anyone just yet. He goes on saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed and on the third day be raised. This is the first time out of about six times where Jesus predicts his coming death in this gospel. Notice the reference here to the Son of Man. He is referring to himself in this language. You say, well, that was, what does that mean, Son of Man? Is that 
Is that an important title? Well, it most certainly is, because if you go back to Daniel in the Old Testament, chapter 7, it's in Daniel chapter 7 that we see that the Son of Man is the divine messianic figure that is promised to come in power and authority to bring redemption, to bring hope, to bring reconciliation and restoration. And Jesus, using that term in reference to himself, is saying, I am the one fulfilling the Old, Test- the Old Prophet's uh, prediction of, of who was to come. I'm the divine messianic figure, promised. Son of man. But notice what he goes on to say. The son of man, Daniel 7, must suffer many things and be rejected, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. Whoa. (laughs) We're all in for the power and authority and the great ushering in of the kingdom. But what do you mean about suffering? What do you mean killed? The Messiah is not what people expect. And that will be clearly seen as most in Israel reject him. Even here, the disciples were a bit short-sighted, likely expecting a direct route to glory. But Jesus here makes clear that the road to glory is marked by suffering. It's one of the things you'll see in the life and ministry of Jesus, and even oftentimes in the lives of Christians, as we'll see in just a little bit, is that suffering precedes glory. Suffering, then glory. You see what we're being told here, what Jesus is saying here is that the Son of Man, the one fulfills Daniel 7, is also the suffering servant, the one that also fulfills Isaiah 53. The one that was going to come and give his life as a ransom for many. The one that would be killed and be raised. Notice what the text says. The Son of Man must suffer. Must. Not might or may or probably will or could. It says must. The Son of Man must suffer. Why is the must there? Because there would be no other way for a holy and righteous and sovereign God to have reconciliation with unrighteous, rebellious sinners like us. This was the way. This was the way. And one of the things that we see that this must does, this must here, this must of verse 22 confronts us with an uncomfortable truth that our rebellion against a holy God is far worse than we think. Jesus had to suffer. He had to be rejected. He had to be killed and on the third day be raised. Why? Not for his own failures, but for ours. Friends, this is the, this is the, the key to his ministry. This is the, the key to his his, his plan and his purpose that we see unfold here as he's saying, don't tell anyone just yet because these things have to happen. Why do they have to happen? Because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. 
You see, Jesus must suffer because God demands righteousness. God demands righteousness. He demands that we be holy. God created us. And when he created us, he created us good and righteous. We see that in Adam and Eve. They quickly, they quickly blew that. Sin entered the world, and ever since, man has been condemned. Because we have inherited the same problem that Adam and Eve had, that we have a, a sin nature. We're, we're rebels against a holy and righteous God. We're not born into this world somehow kind of on God's side and lose our way. We are born into this world having lost our way because we are, by nature, sinners. And God, in his infinite love and beauty, sends forth his Son into the world. And his Son lives a a life of perfect righteousness, and yet he dies a sinner's death on a cross, being punished, crucified, shedding blood. Why? Because without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. He dies in the place of sinners. So that our sins could be atoned for. So that we could be forgiven and counted righteous in God's sight. This is why the Son of Man must be rejected and killed and on the third day be raised. Friends, this is your life. If you've not not experienced the forgiveness of your sins... If, you've, if you don't know what it means to have your sins forgiven, to be fully pardoned, to be counted righteous in God's sight, then friend, this is the good news. It's no accident that you're here today hearing this. God in his kindness and grace has brought you to hear a message like this, to, to, be, to be confronted with the fact that we in our rebellion are far worse than we think, and yet God in his righteousness is far greater and glorious than we imagine. And he sends his son into the world, and this son of man must be rejected, must be killed, must be raised on the third day because God is just and righteous and good. And if you would want your sins forgiven and to be counted among the redeemed of God, then you must forsake your sin, you must repent of your sin and put your full trust in Christ. Not in yourself, not in your good works, not in your deeds, not in your efforts, but in Christ and his complete work. This is the hope that we have because the Son of Man must come and do these things. So friend, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, this is is the hope held out for you. There's a lot of opinions in the world about who Jesus is, or maybe you're watching this on our live stream. There's a lot of opinions in the world as to who Jesus is, but listen, this is the true answer. He is the Son of Man, as Daniel foretold, who came to be the suffering servant for sinners. Look to him and be saved, friends. We'd love nothing more than to have further conversation with you about what it means to follow Jesus, to to become a Christian. This is why Jesus came. An important commentary on this confession. So who is Jesus? He is the Christ of God, the hope for sinners. That confession is where it begins. But it doesn't end there. It has a definite cost. We have a crucial confession, but we also see a definite cost. What does it mean to follow Jesus? We must confess the truth of who he is and give our lives to him for what he's done in faith. But notice the definite cost 
You know, Apple just came out with its latest update. And you know how the update thing goes, whether you have an Apple or you're one of those unregenerate Android users. You click download, and then what pops up? Terms and conditions, right? A little page pops up, and then it asks you to click the box saying, I've read all the terms and conditions, exposing the fact that we are all liars. And it downloads, and we're updated. truth of that is, is that no one ever reads the fine print. If you read all the fine print, you're my new hero. No one reads the fine print. We we know that there's legalese in there and we, we check yes, I've read it. Friends, one of the things that Jesus does is he doesn't give us the fine print. He doesn't say, here, have this, but bury kind of the, the harder things are the, the things that we really need to know kind of in the fine print where we would never read and see it. He states the terms and conditions clearly up front. He never buries anything in the small print. He's clear on the cost of following him. He's preparing his disciples here by calibrating their expectation regarding his earthly ministry and what life would be like for them as disciples. And he's going to tell them here, following me is not easy. It's not for the faint of hearts. It's not a convenient thing. I want us to see at least three realities about following Jesus here as he unpacks it in verses 23 through 27. And he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there's some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Three realities that we see about following Jesus. Number one, it's selfless. It's selfless. Let him deny himself. The life of a disciple is characterized by a basic self-denial. As Paul would later say to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 6, you are not your own for you were bought with a price. Friends, I really wonder. I wonder about me. I wonder about us. How, how often do we really think this way? He goes further here in Luke 9, verse 24, to say, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Seems an odd way to speak. In other words, to gain life, one must give it up. We are called as followers of Jesus to renounce our own agendas so that we become aligned and submitted to the Lord's agenda. And friends, this goes against everything you've been taught. It goes against everything our culture tells you. The culture says, you must be true to yourself. You ever heard that? 
You must be true to yourself. The most important thing in this life is expressing yourself, being true to you. And the worst thing that we can do is to discourage anyone from being true to themselves, they would say. Well, basically, Jesus does that here, doesn't he? He says, if you want to be a disciple, you need to lose yourself. You don't need to be true to you. You need to be true to me. And the beautiful thing that we see about following Jesus that plays out here, somewhat of a paradox, is that once you lose yourself and follow Jesus, you actually become the true you God has designed and ordained you to be. But if you seek to save your life by accommodating to the world, you will lose it. In the end, you expose your true allegiance. But if you're willing to lose your life for Jesus and the gospel, you reveal that your allegiance is with him and you will save it. cost of following Jesus. Sometimes this will mean, as Jesus did, that you will at times suffer for your newfound allegiance. Listen, following Jesus is a call to die to yourself. Dying to self, being given over for the Lord's sake. In fact, you may think you can gain the whole world and have all the power, all the privilege, all the prosperity it has to offer, but in the end, you can have it all and forfeit your own soul. And what a tragedy that would be. The Christian faith is a call to die to yourself and to deny yourself and to follow after Jesus, to take up your cross, we're told, to bear the cross, to to embrace certain rejection and opposition and persecution if need be. Again, this may not hit us as hard today as it would have for these early disciples and many of our brothers and sisters in various parts of the world today. Because following Jesus then and sometimes in many circles today, many nations today, following Jesus meant immediate and certain rejection and certain opposition and persecution. The Christian faith then was a true threat to Judaism and to the religious climate of the day. And though it may look different in our day, the threat, it still remains. For some, that will mean you legally can't openly practice your faith, depending on where you live in the world, without being oppressed, without being persecuted. For some, that means, more likely here in the West, that you should just keep your faith to yourself. See, our secular culture sees and thinks that our claims are a threat. But let's be honest, for many of us, especially in the West, following Jesus does not come with immediate rejection. Yes, I get it, in a way, kind of culture kind of distances itself from us. But listen, it's possible for many, many today to live in such a Christian bubble that self-denial, suffering that Jesus calls us to may not ever be really experienced. 
But if you truly live as a follower of Jesus in this world, it's not a matter of if, but when and how you suffer. Aligning yourself with the crucified and risen Savior will not earn you any favors with this world. I don't know if anyone's ever told you that. I think sometimes in America we think that we can have kind of the the world and have Jesus all at the same time. And we just go on our merry way. Yes, Jesus is kind of in our back pocket. We've got the world and all that it offers as well. It's kind of the best of both worlds, right? We've got the goods of this world and we've got eternity because we've got Jesus in our back pocket. Listen, following Jesus will earn you no favors in this world. None. Are you truly willing to deny yourself and take up your cross? to embrace the cross, to embrace the suffering that Christ calls us to. Because remember, just as it happened in in Jesus' own life and ministry, suffering preceded glory. And friends, as followers of Jesus, we should expect the same, suffering than glory. So what Paul says in Romans 8, that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to compare to the glory that is to be revealed. Sometimes we think we have the glory, we can get the glory now. And yes, there is some, in some ways that the, that the future glory of what we look forward to and hope kind of bleeds back into this world a bit, but it's not the fullness of what we will one day have. And so are you willing to take up your cross and follow Jesus? Think about how this message just sounds to a world fixated on self-indulgence. To say to a self-indulgent world, deny yourself, is like speaking a foreign language. J.C. Ryle said, a crucified Savior will never be content with a self-indulgent people. Friends, the cost of discipleship is demanding. It requires a selfless and humble embrace of Jesus for who he is. And it requires a selfless and humble embrace of what Jesus has called us to do. With renewed minds, embracing suffering, and all the rest. You cannot claim, listen, you cannot claim to follow Jesus and continue to live in the same worldly rhythms as before. Let me put it this way. You cannot claim to follow Jesus and live in the same worldly rhythms as you once did before Jesus and expect to have any assurance of your salvation. This is not, as I have said before, a call to being a super extra credit Christian. This is a call to lay down your life. The call to Christ is a call to lay down your life, to embrace him as your life. This is not just something we tack on. This is who we become. Sam Alberry, in his teaching on this same text, posed two evaluation questions that I think can serve us well. Think about these questions. Just think about them in light of whether or not you're denying yourself and following Christ. Number one, what does God love that I'm tempted to hate? What does God love that I'm tempted 
to hate? And number two, what does God hate that I'm tempted to love? Because being a disciple will mean loving what God loves and hating what God hates. And sometimes in our own heart, and our own flesh, and certainly in this world, those things come into wild conflict. Am I willing to abandon everything that I think is right and good to embrace all that God has clearly said is right and good? To deny my own agenda and give myself over for an agenda that God has established. Friends, this is a selfless call. Number two, it's a daily call. Luke, I think he's the only gospel writer with, that, that in this same text includes the word daily, but it's absolutely essential. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. The call to abandon self, the call to live in full devotion to Christ is not a one-time experience. It is a daily calling. It is, it is a, a, an hourly calling. Living as a Christian requires you and I to go into every day resolve to give ourselves over to following Christ. Christianity is not a one-day-a-week activity. We're not checking our Christian box by being here today or watching the live stream. This is, not, this is not just checking the box. We're just gathering together today to be reminded of these kinds of things so that we can go out into our week encouraged and, by God's grace, driven to live for Him. Friends, Christianity is not a religion of convenience. It's an everyday call to crucify yourself to crucify your agenda and your worldly pursuits so that you can be given over to an infinitely greater reality. Listen, there are no holidays, summer break, sick days, or personal days you take on being a Christian. None. Sometimes people think, well, I'm just, I'm just going to take a little bit of break from the church. That's really odd. I'm just going to kind of take a break from walking with Jesus. You know, I'll, or, you know, I'll do my church thing on Sunday, check the Christian box, and then, you know, I'm kind of back to, to the other things during the rest of the week. Because that's not gospel. I don't know what gospel you've read. But as I said earlier, the terms and conditions are quite clear. We're called to abandon ourselves and to give ourselves over to, to Christ and his purpose. And this is a daily call. We, we never take a break from that. Just quickly, there, what helps us do that? What, what helps us deny ourselves, take up our cross daily and follow Jesus? What has God given to help us do that? Two quick things that, that I think he's given us to help remind us and encourage us towards this kind of life. Number one, spiritual disciplines. Prayer, scripture reading. Meditation, memorization, fasting, uh, the spiritual disciplines that, that he's given us to, to grow us in grace and to grow us as these kinds of followers. Listen, I get it. No one in this room does Luke 9.23 perfectly. 
No one. If you're thinking right now, well, everybody else seems to be getting this and, and I'm just a miserable failure. No, we're all miserable failures. None of us have gotten this right perfectly. That's why each and every day we get up by God's grace and renew ourselves and commit ourselves to following him and taking up our cross and denying ourselves. As, as Stephen prayed earlier, there are things this week where we didn't deny ourselves. We indulged ourselves. But as a Christian, through the disciplines, we're confronted with these realities and we're able to confess those sins and be able to, by God's grace, walk in his wisdom and righteousness. So the spiritual disciplines are a blessing of God. They're not a legalistic, another check in the box kind of thing that you do to make yourself feel good. These are the means that God has given you, your daily breath, we could say, to, to walk in his grace and righteousness. Spiritual disciplines, but also he's given us the church, the local church. Hebrews 10 tells us this. That's why in Hebrews 10, we read in verse 24, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good deeds, good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Friends, we need other self-denying, cross-bearing Christians in our lives to spur us on to love and good deeds. God has not left us in this world to solo our way through this difficult life. He has given us brothers and sisters. He's given us family to encourage and speak into our lives and to, 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 to spur us on. We need other Christians. We need the church. This is, the church is not some kind of extra option for Christians. I, you know, I've heard people say that before. Well, I can be a Christian and not really go to church or be part of a church. Again, I don't know what Bible or gospel you're reading. It's not the Christian one. And I know that even now that this, this, this reality of being the church and, and engaging in fellowship and community is, is something that has some unique challenges because of all that's going on in our world. And I know that there are some who are benefiting from watching our live stream, even as I speak. But friends, we need to understand that that is even temporary. YouTube was never meant to be a suitable option for fellowship. It was never meant to be a suitable option for gathering with the saints so that we can spur each other on to love and good deeds. We need each other because we're called to a daily self-abandonment that we need help doing. And God has given us, by his grace, fellow Christians to spur us on, and we need that community and relationship. It's a daily call, but number three, it's a rewarding one. It's a rewarding one. Jesus' call to discipleship comes with a warning about judgment, but in that warning, he speaks of future glory. Look at, look at the passage. For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory, the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. So he's, he's speaking there of the time when the Son of Man will come again in glory. It's a warning for us not to be ashamed of him in that moment, but he's telling us of this coming glory that's, that's going to happen. And in verse 27, he says, But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until... They see the kingdom 
of God. So Jesus is speaking of this coming glory. And when Jesus comes again in glory, he's coming to transform us into glory. His return, as Titus says, is indeed our blessed hope. Friends, this indeed is is, is central to our motivation for taking up the cross. For doing Luke 9.23, we need the motivation of Luke 9.26 and 27. That there's coming a future glorious appearing. We suffer now and we see glory then. He even promises the disciples in verse 27 that they will get a little foretaste of that glory. I know 27 may throw you, some of you, for a loop. What do you mean? They won't die before they see the kingdom of God. Just a couple quick thoughts on that. First of all, it's likely, an, likely a reference to what we're going to see next week in the transfiguration where they see Jesus transfigured in glory before their very eyes. I think it also has to be with the reality deal with the reality that that they will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God, meaning that the the, the kingdom of God in its already form. We know the kingdom of God is already but not yet. So he's speaking in its already form. And as we see Christ go to the cross, as he's predicted, he's going to be killed and then on the third day be raised. We know that from Acts chapter 2, particularly in verse 33, after his death, then comes the resurrection and ascension, and that's referring to his exaltation and enthronement as Messiah. And so, transfiguration, death, resurrection, ascension is all what they're referencing here. You're you're going to see all of this unfold before you die. The, the, uh, The entrance of the kingdom of God in its already form. And all of this points to the fact that there is a future glory awaiting us. The not yet form of the kingdom is coming. And that's when the full blessing of God will be realized and enjoyed forever. And friends, just know that that enjoyment and that glory is only for those who confess Christ as the Messiah and who count the cost in self-denial in following Jesus. If you want to be a true follower of Jesus, then you need to realize it comes both with a confession and a cost. Too many people, I'm afraid, too many people in this world, perhaps in the church, perhaps too many people in this room want the confession without the cost. They want to be a fan. They're not really interested in being a follower. Friends, if you truly confess Jesus as Messiah and trust him by faith, then you will surely most most definitely count the cost by denying self and taking up your cross daily and following him all your days. Because the only true Christianity is costly. The only true Christian is a self-denying disciple. You want true fulfillment in this world? It doesn't come by chasing your dreams and being true to you. If you want true fulfillment, if you want to gain all that Christ and and the Lord has for us, it actually comes by abandoning your life and giving it over to Christ 
by confessing him as Lord and by following him as your faithful shepherd. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for exposing and clearly outlining for us what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you for the hope that's ours in the gospel. We thank you for the work that Jesus came to do on our behalf, came to accomplish his life, his rejection, his death, and then, yes, his resurrection, all the the means that you gave for our sake. Father, we're thankful for that. Lord, would you help us today to walk in light of this glorious truth? Would you help that to be our confession, that we would see Jesus as the true Messiah and Savior of sinners, the one sent from of old, the one promised of old, the one sent from heaven to be the one who rescues and redeems? But Lord, help us to also realize what that means for our lives, not merely about confessing something with our lips, Father, it means engaging with our hearts in the fullness of all that we are, that we would deny ourselves, that we would abandon our own expectations, that we would abandon our own agendas for an infinitely better one. We would count the cost and follow you. Lord, would you help us in this? Would you help us to, to turn from our sins? Lord, and there may be some who aren't here today as, and they're not Christian. Lord, would you... Would you draw them to yourself today? Would you show them that their need ultimately is to give themselves over to the Lord Jesus Christ? Would you help them to confess? And would you help them to count the cost? Lord, for those who follow Christ, those who have confessed him as Lord, Lord, it's true. We often struggle. We often struggle in denying ourselves. We often struggle in taking up our crosses. Seeing this as a daily call. Forgive us, Father, where we have failed you in these ways. Renew our hearts and our minds today that we may follow after you in the ways that you have called us to. Lord, we thank you for all that we have, all that we've been given. Help us to honor you with our lives, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.